Today we are taking a break from the Gospel of Luke and we're jumping over to the Gospel of John. As you can read from yourself in the read for yourself in the bulletin today, um, the season of Epiphany is commonly associated with the visitation of the Magi, the baptism of Christ, and his miracle at the wedding in Cana. And so today we're going to be taking a look at Jesus's miracle at the wedding in Cana, which according to verse 11 was his first public miracle and a manifestation of his glory. The Gospel of John opens with a clear reference back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And if you read through John chapters 1 and 2, you, you may notice that John is presenting the narrative as a succession of days. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And then chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day. And so it's clear that John is working with creation themes. And several of these days correspond quite clearly with the days in Genesis chapter 1. And yet various scholars have debated on on how best to count up these days in in John chapters 1 and 2. Um, it's possible that the wedding in Cana occurs on the sixth day, the day on which Adam and Eve were created. It's also possible that it's the seventh or the eighth day. Um, personally, I'm partial to the sixth day interpretation. As we'll see, the text actually indicates that Jesus is fulfilling the role of the bridegroom at this wedding, which means that Jesus is being presented as a new Adam. Humanity is being recreated, and John chooses a wedding feast as the best context for making his point. Jesus is the new Adam, the first representative of a whole new humanity. And so the attentive reader of this gospel, I think, should expect to see him at some point entering into a deep sleep as a bride is taken from his side. Okay, that's a little sermon foreshadowing for you. Um, We'll read beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So they run out of wine. Um, we can all picture this dilemma. The bar is closed, right? It's a dry wedding. Um, the dance floor is desolate. Everyone's standing around with, you know, empty hands. Um, and in a town like Cana, the, the wedding would probably involve almost the entire village, including some from neighboring villages as well. So this, it, it was a lot of wine to begin with. And it was customary for the groom to provide it. It was customary for the groom to provide the wine for the wedding feast. And running out of wine was more than just just a bummer. It was an absolute social disaster. The groom's entire family would have borne the shame of this for many years. And, And some people even considered it a bad omen for the future of the marriage. But Mary, the mother of Jesus, was also at the wedding, and she knew that Jesus could help. When she approaches him, he gives this um, strange and seemingly cold response. 
What, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His hour had not yet come. The Greek word for hour is used 26 times in the Gospel of John. So time after time, we are told that his hour is coming. But not yet. Not yet. Not yet. And then in chapter 12, immediately following his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus declares, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And by glorified, Jesus meant crucified. Paradoxically, in the Gospel of John and elsewhere, the death of Jesus is a moment of supreme glory. There was no greater manifestation of the glory of God. Nothing reveals the love of God like his willingness to suffer death on our behalf. Nothing reveals the power of God like his ability to defeat his adversaries while being murdered by them. The cross is a manifestation of supreme glory. And so Mary comes to Jesus and she says, we need wine. And Jesus effectively replies, it's not my time to die. Verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Remember, the bridegroom was responsible for providing wine for the wedding feast. So in providing the wine, Jesus is taking over the responsibility of the bridegroom. Figuratively speaking, Jesus is assuming the role of the bridegroom. And so when the master of the feast tastes the wine and turns to speak to the actual bridegroom, we know that these words are intended for Jesus. This is about Jesus. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. You see, the custom was to serve the good stuff first, and then once everyone was juiced up, um, they would pass out the cheap stuff but not Jesus. In the Bible and in the kingdom of God, the most glorious things are always yet to come. The most glorious things are always yet to come. Eden was glorious, right? But the new Jerusalem is more glorious. The plants and animals were glorious, but the creation of humanity, that was more glorious. Adam was glorious, but Eve was more glorious. The tabernacle was glorious, but the temple was more glorious. The old covenant was glorious, but the new covenant was more glorious. God's future is always more glorious than the past or even the present. And yes, I I do think this runs counter to how many evangelicals imagine the future. Many American Christians think they have interpreted the prophecies and discerned the times and deciphered the code, and they're convinced that Jesus is returning on February 22nd, 2022 at 2.22 a.m. And why do they, why do they think that? 
Why do they think that the return of Christ is imminent? Well, because culturally, things appear to be getting worse. But listen, that is, that is not how the Bible invites us to imagine the kingdom of God. The kingdom is a small seed that grows into a large tree. The kingdom is a pinch of leaven that leavens the entire loaf. The kingdom is a slight trickle that grows into a raging river. Those are the metaphors used to describe the kingdom. And so if if life on earth gets worse and worse and worse, and then Jesus returns, I will be the first to admit that that I'm wrong about this. But Jesus does not serve the good wine first. In the kingdom of God, the best is yet to come. The most glorious things are yet to come. And so we have hope. We do not have despair. Now, let me jump back uh, to this idea of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was glorious. The New Covenant was more glorious. In verse 6, we learn that there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. We are not merely told that Jesus found some jars. We are told that Jesus found six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. So Jesus is not just turning water into wine. Jesus is turning the water of purification under the old covenant into new covenant wine. What once was water for the cleansing of sin is transformed into a celebratory marriage feast. Why? Well, according to Hebrews chapter 9, the blood of Christ, which is symbolized by wine, cleanses us once and for all. There is no more ongoing need for stone jars and purification rituals. Jesus has come to cleanse us once and for all, and that's why baptism is a one-time thing. It's a one-time cleansing. And so we might as well turn all of these stone jars into vats for wine and celebrate. That's the point. And of course, This wedding feast in John chapter 2 is is merely a symbolic precursor for an even greater wedding feast to come. We read about that in Revelation chapter 19. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. There's a wedding feast to come. And and as the bridegroom, Jesus will be responsible for providing the wine. Or in other words, for Jesus to have his bride, his bride, he will have to shed his blood. As I said earlier, Jesus is a new Adam, the first representative of a whole new humanity. And the attentive reader of this gospel should expect to see him entering into a deep sleep as a bride is fashioned from his side. And I believe that's precisely what is happening later in the gospel of John as Jesus is hanging on the cross. But first, let's look back at Genesis chapter 2. 
Recall that Adam was the first man. And more than that, more than that, he was the first husband, the first married man. He was the first bridegroom. Genesis 2.21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And so in Genesis 2, the first bride is drawn out of the side of the first bridegroom. The word rib there is really just the Hebrew word for side. God opens Adam's side and Eve is fashioned out of what is drawn from Adam's side. The bride is fashioned out of the bridegroom's side. Now, John chapter 19, verse 30. Jesus, hanging on the cross, says, It is finished. He bows his head and gives up his spirit. So here we see Jesus entering into a deep sleep, the deep sleep of death. And verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now listen to how St. Augustine interprets this event. He says, For as Jesus suffered and died on the cross and was pierced by a spear, the sacraments which formed the church flowed forth from him. As Eve came from the side of the sleeping Adam, so the church was born from the side of the suffering Christ. So baptism and the Lord's Supper, water and blood, these are the elements which form and animate the church. They give us life. They give life to the bride. The church receives her life from the water and blood which flow from the wounded side of Christ. The bride of Christ is fashioned out of the wounded side of her sleeping bridegroom. And it's worth, it's worth pointing out that all of this took place on the sixth day. On the sixth day in Genesis 1 and 2, the side of Adam produces Eve. On the sixth day of John 2, jars of water produce wine. On the sixth day of John 19, we call it Good Friday. The side of Christ produces the church. These are all stories of transformation. And and specifically, John chapter 2 is all about transformation. But how? How does this transformation take place? What brings transformation about? We all have that thing that we want to change about ourselves, right? How, how, how is transformation brought about? Think back to verse 4. Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine. Jesus says to Mary, my hour has not yet come. And then what does Mary say? Well, she turns to the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Jesus hasn't even said he was going to do it yet. Do whatever he tells you. And the servants obey. The servants do whatever Jesus tells them to do. It didn't matter that his instructions would have seemed absurd to them. It didn't matter that his instructions made no sense to them. They did what they were told. They obeyed Jesus. 
And that is how transformation happens. Transformation happens when we, in the presence of Jesus, do whatever he tells us to do. If you're in the room this morning, I'm I'm willing to bet that you resonate with something about Jesus and his vision for the world. Something. You probably think Jesus has something important to teach you. You probably think that a world full of people living more like Jesus would be a better place. And if so, if that's you, then the world you want actually begins with you deciding to do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Don't cherry pick your favorite teachings. Don't sand down what you consider to be the rough edges of his teachings. It's not just love and peace and joy and hope. It is that, but it's not just that. It's also suffering and perseverance and sacrifice and death. It's also leave the dead to bury their own dead. It's also love your enemies. Yes, those enemies. It's also turn the other cheek. It's also sell your possessions and give to the needy. It's also fear him who has authority to cast into hell. And so it's not, it's not that we haven't heard his command to care for the poor. It's not that we haven't heard his command to love one another sacrificially. It's, it isn't that we haven't, it's not that we haven't heard his command to practice hospitality. It's often, if we're honest, and I'm speaking for myself, I'm being honest, it's often that we are slow to do whatever he tells us to do. We're slow to do it. And as a result, we rob ourselves of transformation. And we rob our brothers and sisters of transformation. And we rob our neighborhood of transformation. Transformation happens when we, in the presence of Jesus, do whatever he tells us to do. And so today, let's resolve to be good servants of Christ. Let's resolve to do whatever he tells us. And the promise of John chapter two is that we will have the privilege of witnessing the sort of transformation that only Jesus is able to bring about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for making this life so rich for giving us family and friends and community, for giving us good food and good drink through which to commune with one another and to commune with you. Jesus, thank you for shedding your blood, for the life and for the joy of the world. We want to learn to live like you lived. We want to we do whatever it is that you want us to do. Holy Spirit, inspire and empower us toward that sort of unwavering, unquestioning obedience. Transform us from um, one degree of glory to another, from water to wine. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.